HashiCast from HashiCorp. Welcome to HashiCast Women in Tech, where we empower you to enable change and help you to diversify your technical organization. In this series, we will bring to light the challenges women face in tech, hear limiting beliefs that are holding women back, share stories to inspire you, and give practical and actionable strategies to hire and retain technical women. I'm Sarah Polin, a field CTO and thought leader throughout Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and an outspoken advocate for women in tech and those from non-traditional backgrounds. And I'm Kelly Kitagawa, a senior solutions engineer working with our largest global customers. My mission is to enable marginalized communities to thrive in the tech space. Sarah and I are so excited to have our next guest, Deborah Carter, join us on our podcast today. Deborah is on a mission to nurture the next generation of technology innovators in the Netherlands. And nine years ago, she founded New Tech Kids, which is the first tech academy in Amsterdam to teach computer science, programming, design, and critical thinking about technology to primary school students. She later then helped launch a nonprofit called Preparation Tech, which challenges stereotypes held by high school students that only nerds and geeks work in tech. Um, And she does this through video interviews featuring a diverse and inclusive group of tech role models. Not only has she given a TED Talk called Watch Out Silicon Valley, We're Coming For You, but she has also been featured in several books, including Ethics in a Digital World, Guiding Students Through Society's Biggest Questions, and Is This a Prototype? The Curious Craft of Exploring New Ideas. Everyone, please give a warm welcome to Deborah. Well, thank you so much for having me. So obviously, you and I know each other from the Amsterdam expat community, um, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have you and discuss a little bit more because I think you have a really unique perspective when it comes to technology and women in technology and how that can evolve over time. Shall we circle up to the rapid fire questions really quickly? Absolutely. Let's go. All right. Favorite publication? Uh, the New Yorker magazine. Who do you go to for career advice? I go to friends. I go to advisors. I go to the internet. My son is increasingly becoming an, a, a great source of input. Ooh, brilliant. Any guilty pleasures? Ooh, I love a good bath every night. Soaking in the bath with a glass of wine. Amen. Or a, or a cup of tea. I'm oversharing here. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. I love it. I love it. Uh, tech themes to watch for. Um, I would say, of course, generative AI. I would also say tech ethics. Proudest personal accomplishment. Raising a son that I was not planning on having. <laughs> he was a decent human being and mm. he's interested and enthusiastic and just the light of my life. <laughs> Early riser or night owl? I got to say I'm a night owl. Who is a woman, dead or alive, that inspires you? I think Harriet Tubman. Man, she was a badass. She was uh, amazing. I'd love to have met her. Sojourner Truth, another abolitionist who um, gave this fiery speech that uh, was just amazing. They never gave up. They helped people to their dying days. Oh, brilliant. Mm. Favorite song that always makes you dance? Everybody Dance by Chic and I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Ooh, I feel love, I feel love. <laughs> yes, that's such a good one. And lastly, any rituals you live by? Ooh, start the day with being grateful. And one thing I always say is thank you for letting me see another day because my sister did not have that benefit. Take life by the horns and live it. No regrets. 
Yeah. Would you mind filling us in a little bit for those of our listeners who don't know you or haven't had the opportunity to get to know you about your career journey and how did you make that transition from really the corporate world and then into more STEM educations and that STEM education stemming from kids all the way through to adolescents? Yeah, sure. My career journey. Well, I'm one of probably the few people who knew from young what they wanted to be in life. I always loved reading and writing and writing stories and everything else. And, you know, over time, my teacher said, you know what, there's a profession called journalism and they tell stories and they report on the news. And so I took that to heart. And I knew probably from the time I was 13 that I want to be a journalist. I got to journalism school and realized that there's not that much creativity in journalism because you're reporting the facts, right? So I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I subsequently did a master's degree in television journalism because I like to be on camera. And Oprah was there at the time. And yes. every little black girl wanted to be Oprah. After I finished my master's in television journalism, I was uh, recruited to do a two-month fellowship in the U.S. I'm from Canada to do um, a fellowship on digital media. These were the, the really the early days of Internet. And so I did a management course on how do you transform newsrooms into digital newsrooms. And after that, I was recruited by an AOL subsidiary. I went down and spent three years in the U.S., first in South Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, and then to the New York Times Digital, which was a very exciting time to be in New York uh, with the whole Internet thing going on. And when I moved to Amsterdam, I switched more into business development to recognize in myself that I had a hustle. So I joined an Internet research firm, and then I went into kind of innovation, helping companies to see how technology could be leveraged for new products and services and experiences. And so innovation was very much in my mind. And then something really crazy happened in my life. My youngest sister gave birth to a baby boy as a single mother, and then she died unexpectedly from stroke. Oh my goodness. So I'm in Amsterdam. She's in Canada with the rest of the family, and there's a little boy in the hospital. So I dropped everything, and I went back to Canada. The son that I have is actually my nephew. All of a sudden, you got a kid, and things that you don't think about when you're childless become really important, and that is education. So I put him in a Dutch primary school, and then I start to be critical. Wait a minute. There's no technology education. This is like year one, two, three, four. There's nothing. So it really gnawed at me. And I had this whole consultation where I was talking to a lot of people and they said, well, why don't you do something about it? And so I put together a team of interesting advisors. We developed a curriculum, a pedagogy on how you effectively teach kids about this. And, you know, we just had to do it. We started teaching. <laughs> we just started with a few classes and then we introduced boot camps and then it just exploded. I was asked to do a TED talk and that became my calling part. Everybody was like, that was a message that everybody could get behind. And so we've just grown consistently over nine years. I'm not a professional teacher. So I work with professional teachers, uh, very tightly with professional teachers. And I also help develop our curriculum. So who would not the journalist? who knew what she was going to be, would turn out to be in the education field. And I like to say I'm also in the talent development field, right? Because uh, we are, as we like to say, creating, developing, nurturing, coaching future innovators from around the world, especially the Netherlands. 
Yeah. So that's kind of my career trajectory. <laughs> I, I love that. I think that's so amazing and just goes to show that, you know, those pivots and you never quite know what the catalyst is going to be or why you're going to end up doing what you do. But what you do can be so powerful, even if it's a little bit removed or seemingly removed, because, you know, it sounds like you made a very gradual transition over time to to being in this more techie space. So you were saying that you started off for your son um, in terms of these tech classes and the boot camps and things like that. How did you make that transition into a little bit of an older set of children or adolescents? We have been busy with new tech kids for nine years. And of course, the pandemic came. So, you know, let's go back a bit. Uh, you can imagine what it did to our business. We are going into schools, into libraries, into child care centers and teaching kids computer science, robotics, coding, uh, design, etc. The pandemic hits and we have to stop everything. We cannot teach anymore. And the way we teach, because it's really personalized and it's with physical objects, it doesn't transcend well to online. So basically, we stopped teaching. It was quiet. And so at that time, we had a, uh, you know, we had the time to think, wait a second. So we're getting all these primary school students really excited about innovation and computer science. But then something happens when these kids hit high school. They're like doing nothing with technology. And we're just devastated because we put so much time and effort into them being excited about computer science. Mm -hmm. So we started to interview kids. And what we found was that in high school, call it hormones or just call it, you know, just change perception. (laughs) Kids really start to look negatively at tech. They think, I'm not a geek. I'm not a nerd. I don't like programming. I shouldn't study it. I don't want to work in tech, et cetera. And so we thought, oh, my gosh, we have to do something to change the perception and to drive home the message that no matter what you do in now and in the future, especially in the future, it is going to involve tech. So therefore, everybody needs technology and skills. So we launched Operation Tech, which is a storytelling platform. We took really cool role models doing cool things with tech. They either work in the tech industry or they work in other industries but that are using tech to do things in cool ways. People like David Hansen, who is the one of the world's leading inventors, humanoid robots, you know, and Sophia, who can sing and have a conversation. Yeah. You know, he was totally a nerd, but he was also an artist. He couldn't choose. And at the end, he combined both with AI and stuff like this. Uh, oh, gosh, we've interviewed so many people, cybersecurity, venture capitalists, patent and IT lawyers, etc. So we like to say we get them when they're young with the skills and then we keep them with the storytelling and the role models. So that's how we kind of bring in different age groups. Oh, I love that. I think that's such a, a brilliant model. and. As a parent of two girls myself and seeing that evolution from child into adolescent, it's a great way and a great method, I think. I do want to come back to that a little bit later, but first things first, the reason we're here today is really to talk about representation and why some of that is important, particularly to to girls and children, adolescents. So I want to know, why does representation matter to you? Well, look at me. I'm a black woman. (laughs) (laughs) And I... I'm very happy with where I am in my life, but I have lived the implications of not having access to all the opportunities that everyone else has. So for me, representation is a personal mission. I think in 2023, kids should have equal opportunity and they should be able to have all doors open to them 
and not have to worry about not having qualifications or knowledge or skills. And this is not what's happening. So, you know, there's so much talk about uh, representation, diversity and inclusion. These conversations are great, but we need to pivot to real tactics mm. stuff addressed. So representation uh, drives what I do. Very much so. I want to see a world where there is gender parity in the tech industry. I want yeah. to see a world yeah. where there is high representation of mm-hmm. underrepresented communities, be they LGBTQ, be they uh, non-white, be they people with disabilities, etc. We need that to get to the full potential of innovation. We need this kind of representation. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the work that I do on a daily basis uh, moves the needle a bit. I always say that if there are only one or two students that do something really cool with their life, I will be satisfied. <laughs> I will be satisfied. <laughs> well, I hear your passion coming out so much, and I love that it's a, your personal story, but it shows up in your work every single day. And I think that is so inspirational to have women that look like you in this space. And I would even ask, you know, when you were in that space and transitioning and were in the corporate world or when you even were starting your companies, were there women that looked like you in positions of power? No, I would say not. Not too many of them. Okay, so in my day-to-day life, I had great role models. I had my mother. I had my aunties. I had the women in church. I had some great teachers. But were they people in positions of power over larger organizations? No. The great thing I had, though, as a as a kid growing up in Canada was the TV. And my biggest role model was Oprah. Here was this former journalist that created a show that was syndicated all over the world. She was one of the most famous people in the world. I loved her interviews. I loved her magazine. Still is. Yeah, she still got it. Exactly, exactly. So I had role models, but from a distance, you know, Mm -hmm. and I also have the women in my lives. But if you talk about power, there's two different things. Yeah. And why, you know, is that important to see people that look like you? Like, how does that affect you or the children that you see in the day and day? Well, I love the tagline. You cannot be what you cannot see. Mm-hmm. And I really think role models are super, super, super important. I'll give you an example. So we have been asked by a school in Amsterdam Southeast, which is considered kind of like the ghetto of Amsterdam, largely immigrant, largely non-white, huge black population. So we show up and um, the kids are just, just gobsmacked when they see me because <laughs> Even though it's in in this area that's high, like a high population of black people, the teachers at the school tend to be white. And even the little ones, because they're so so spontaneous, they talk to me and hug me. And you can see that they, I could be their auntie, right? They're just so happy. So I think it's really, really important. And even, so we've done two blocks of programs. We finished one set of programs and even we started the new set uh, this week and even the older kids, the guys that are kind of cool and stuff, I can see one of them kind of hanging around the class while I was getting prepared to teach. And he's, he just said, Hey teacher, you know what? You taught us about chat GPT and AI and now I've got a TikTok channel. But he was so happy to share this with me. A little That's black boy. So cool. And, uh, so representation matters. Talk, yeah. Talking 
You know, having them have access to somebody who looks like them and who can relate to their experience is really important. Yeah, and it brings up a good topic because we we talk about gender a lot, especially in these podcasts and our articles. But race is also really critical in that because so many people are intersectional, right? You could be gay and a woman. You can be Jewish and be black, right? And, you know, how does that show up for you being black and being a woman and how you lead or with the students or like, is there an importance of not just girls, but also girls of color? Yeah, there is a real underrepresentation of kids in tech education, getting access to tech education here, but also obviously in the tech industry. So what we have really drilled down on in the last, I would say, two years is making sure that schools and organizations in uh, low-income, disadvantaged communities of color get access to the uh, tech education that we deliver. And so this is one of the requirements. Any program we do, we say, look, we want parity. Do not mm-hmm. come with a classroom of boys because we won't do it. We yeah. want to see girls. And um I consider myself, I'm not a black woman, <laughs> you know. So I want to see these girls getting leadership skills, tech skills, so that they can step into the tech industry because black women are fierce, man. They're yes, fierce. Yes. More black women. Thank you. <laughs> we need more of them in this space. Yes. And yes. it's so sure. amazing to see strong, like you said, role models that look like you because otherwise, if you can't see it, you can't know that it's a possibility for you or a career path or a trajectory. And also like, I don't know, I think it creates more of a, of different paths in your mind when you're at that age, right? You're so um, moldable and you're like, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be an astronaut. And when you see other people that look like you, you're like, wait, I could be like that too. And those small subtleties make a huge impact. And I know for me in my journey and my career, I don't think that I would have gotten to where I am today if I hadn't had other female role models that, that looked up to because it's also about styles, right? Like more masculine or more feminine leadership styles too, like in how you teach. And how you see people speak, like that just shows up everywhere. That's a good point that you make because I see it in the class, right? Uh, Even the class we had on Tuesday, we were talking about how computers work, right? We want to teach kids that it's not these black boxes that, you know, you don't know how they work and they're just too complicated for you. So we crack them open. We show them the inside of a desktop and show them the inside of a laptop. And we talk about the most important part so that anytime you see anything that's computing, you know, these parts are in there. And so we were showing them, I think it was a battery. And we we're talking about the energy, how these devices are, need energy. And we showed a picture of um, a power bank and we didn't think that the kids would know it. But here's this little black girl. She puts her hand up and she's like, um, I know this. This And she proceeds to <laughs> on how these work and this girl is six years old okay wow now oh my gosh say yeah exactly in a certain context you know people might say oh my gosh what does she do she is so she's so confident i'm just like yes miss keep it going (laughs) tell us more come on miss you know style so you gotta intervene Mm. when these girls feel so confident and knowledgeable about tech you gotta encourage them yeah i think that's Excellent point, because we know also that cognitive pruning and neural pruning begins 
around adolescence. So the sooner we can get them, the sooner we can create these neural pathways and show them that these are possibilities. These things exist. These are options for you, for your future, and that you can even innovate on top of those and how people have innovated previously, the more likely we are to get girls involved in what's going on and um, into the tech industry. And I think they also did a study that I saw where um, gender bias begins at six. Oh, seven. Um, And so, you know, it's our job as leaders, as you're in an incredibly powerful position, Deborah, in being able to to get to these these girls early on to show them that it is possible and it's not a gender thing. And it's okay to be brave. It's you don't have to be perfect every single time. Absolutely. Absolutely. See these these dynamics play out, too, you know, because there is especially if if they have to share things like if we're working on tablets, we get the kids to work in pairs. And um, I don't want to make huge uh, sweeping statements, but often there's tension if there's a boy and girl about who has control of the tablet. So you get a lot of pulling back and forth. What I like about these little girls is they ain't having it. They're like, oh, no. Whereas in, in other contexts, they will just acquiesce. So it's, uh, it's, really, it's really interesting. And you mentioned this, too, about basically demanding that if you're going to do these school programs that you need to have girls in there too. And I think that that's such an important and critical piece that it's not the default that you have to actually demand it. And, and really, you know, you talked about gender parity in your classroom and I think that's so fascinating and it relates so much to gender parity in tech. Like I'm the only woman on my team or I have been until I just got a female manager, which is amazing and almost pretty unheard of for me. Um, how did you get to gender parity within your classroom? This is a great question. The million dollar question. So we had been doing new tech kid. We were in about two years and we noticed that, oh my gosh, every program is like 85 to 90% boys. We're lucky if uh, we could get 10% girls. This is not what we wanted. So we had to take a really hard look at what is it we're doing that is creating this dynamic. And so we kind of deconstructed everything and started Started to make changes to every single level and activity that we did, starting with if you go to New Tech Kids' social media pages, you will see girls, 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 girls building robots, girls doing this, girls. We overemphasize girls. And why do we do that? Because we heard from parents, oh, I've got a daughter, but I don't think this is I've got a son. This is more his thing. Right. Mm. So people see examples of girls thriving in computer science courses. The other thing we did was we looked at the curriculum. What are the themes that we're choosing? What are the activities that we're doing? Right. So a lot of our early themes were like uh, Star Wars or like robot race or that played to the boys. So we said, okay, let's step back and let's think of new themes. So we came up with things like books and films come to life with robots. So we would take popular books or film where kids would know the plot and we would show them like uh, the trailers of these. And then we would say, okay, so today we're going to build a robot, invent a robot that fits somehow into the story. It's a much more neutral topic than a robot destroy monster kind of thing that plays to guys. Some, some girls, by the way, love that stuff. But not all girls. So we started to experiment with that. We did another one of robots playing games. We took traditional board games, 
And we said, well, how can we turn this into a robot game? Girls love it. Why strategy, tactics, different levels of learning? They loved it. Another popular one, robots performing art. So you've got, uh, you've got statues, you've got drawing, you've got, um, playing music. So all of these things appeal to both boys and girls where before we were really focused on pleasing the boys. The other thing we did is we noticed that there's a disparity in the experience of girls when it comes to building. A lot of parents consciously and unconsciously drive their kids to certain kinds of play. So the boys tend to be doing a lot of building, a lot of Lego. So, and, and by doing that, they learn a lot about physics and putting things together, which is for robotics, right? So these girls come into our courses and they're a bit helpless because they've never done this and they're behind and they're very conscious of that. So we adapted our programs to put more emphasis at the beginning on basic physics, how to build things with Lego mm. and so and we have cheat sheets in the classroom and stuff. So it really brought girls up to speed quickly. By the end of our classes, they are routinely outstripping, outperforming the boys in robotics. So you do have to make these kinds of interventions to to bring up that parity and to create an environment where girls can thrive as well as boys. Because it's not just about the girls have to thrive and forget about the boys. It's about a learning environment where both can thrive. I think it's really amazing how you've created this equity within this environment without feeling like you're pandering to one side or another or saying you're going to cater to the girls because, you know, they're less adept or something like that, but it's really this, this world of everybody wins, everybody gets the same baseline so that they can really move on from that. Um, and I would very much like to take one of your workshops. They sound like they're so much fun. <laughs> they are, they are. And especially if you just accept that failure in experimentation is part of the process, right? There's no, Perfect answer. I remember one of the least favorite things that I, I do is dealing with parents. So that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Um, I routinely get calls from parents who are convinced their kid is high IQ, brilliant Einstein, and somehow they found our classes difficult and they didn't shine. They didn't have the best robot. And so one one mother called me and said, you know, like, I, you know, I love what you're doing, but, you know, Susie came home and she was upset because her robot didn't work and la, la, la. To which I said, you know what? We didn't think anybody's robot was going to work. We we put the, we made a very difficult class so that we could push the students. And I said, you know, we were expecting students to get like 20% of it. And Susie got like 70% of it. So what seems like failure to her mm-hmm. is like an amazing achievement to us. Yeah. So <laughs> that's also the perception. It's not computer science, as you know, is not easy. And the problem solving skills and the creativity skills that are yeah. needed. It's just, I feel a bit sorry sometimes for our students because they go to school all day. They're tired. And then here they go get one and a half hours of heavy computer science. Right. But they do it and they have fun. You know, I I'll, really quickly before we go on to the next question, that's such an interesting topic because I remember hearing a talk about someone who does those mystery rooms. 
And there's this certain curve of happiness where if it's too easy, they're not going to get the satisfaction out of it. They're not going to learn the lessons. So you have to intentionally make it hard or else they won't keep coming back. And you have to learn and teach them that failure is okay and there's nothing wrong with it. And that's part of the journey. And it feels so much better and more rewarding once you've failed and then you get it rather than it just being easy all the way. That is such an important lesson, I think, that carries through in everything we do. But I think that's such an interesting perspective. Absolutely, especially for the girls, because they're allergic to failure, right? Mm -hmm. So it's also getting them in the mind mindset that it's okay to fail, because Mm -hmm. they're, like, devastated when things don't work. And it's like, eh. You know, just try it, you know. The perfectionism, the perfectionism, it's so evasive everywhere. I, speaking for myself. <laughs> I, I'm no, yeah, I'm no exception to that rule. Um, I love Reshma Sojani, who does, uh, Girls Who Code. Oh, yes. Uh, one of her things when she, when she was back teaching, and I think the, they probably still do it today within the organization, is when they have women who are coding something and they're saying it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. They'll frequently go to the computers and there's nothing on the screen. There's no code, nothing. So they'll go back and they'll hit the control Z and all of this code will pop up on the screen that they've coded and recoded. And usually there's one small error or one thing that just isn't going quite right. But as women, we're so conditioned to be perfect and to, yeah. to have this perfectionism that we forget what it's like to be brave and Mm. that that's so much more of the journey and so much more of the learning than actually being perfect all of the time. I love her Ted talk. Yeah. Teach girls to be brave, not perfect. Mm. I think mm. I, mm. I love her. And I, I also now that she's in this mom sort of stream of things yeah. also Watch just her, her voice, I think is so, so important. And I love her because she's about, okay, this is a problem. What are we going to actionable? Very actionable. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you about too is sort of this limiting belief amongst girls and what does, how does that play itself out in your ecosystem? I know that growing up, for example, I was heavily involved in the performing arts and that narrative was very much, Sarah, you're an artistic person. And it didn't matter that, you know, I was a year ahead in mathematics. I was doing AP chemistry. Nobody focused on that. They focused on the fact that, no, you're you're an artist. That's what you need to do. So I went off to college and I studied opera, vocal performance, made a career of that before I made the pivot into tech. How do you manage those limiting beliefs that you hear from the students, but also from the adults in those ecosystems? Because those voices can be so powerful when it comes to younger people. Okay, so two kind of target groups. The one is parents. We should never underestimate the role of parents in conditioning kids to about their self-perception. We, in the early days, often heard parents who had boys and girls say, oh, new tech kids is perfect for my son. He's going to love it. He does it. That's not the thing for my daughter. Nah, she's not into it. So they just take away an option because they don't think that their daughter is sufficiently techy. And that is uh, something that we really try to fight against. Um, so when we talk to parents, uh, do they like to solve problems? Are they creative solve, uh, problem solvers? Do they like design in the de- design process? You know, do they like to think critically about issues about technology? Have discussions with them. They're like, yeah, yeah, they, they you know, YouTube tutorials and la, la, la. 
perfect. New tech kids would be perfect for them. Also, when it comes to high school, when kids have to think about their profiles, where they have to create a specialization track. So they have a general education, but by the fourth year, they have to, I think, five or six areas that they have to choose. You know, parents will say, oh, they're nothing technical or science or culture. But there's a lot of tech and culture, right? There's a lot of tech and art and stuff. So I think parents have to be really, really careful about how they portray tech. And the second thing, um, some of the misconceptions that girls have, a lot will say, I'm terrible at math, so therefore I'm, ter- I'm terrible at technology. Mm. I don't want to be a programmer, so therefore tech has nothing. I don't want to get into tech. I don't want to sit in front of a computer all day. We're hearing more and more about this from high school students. They really mm. think that a means you're chained to your desk. So these perceptions are uh, something we have to fight against. On a personal note, I was told in grade three that I was hopeless at math. My teacher said this to me, oh, you're just hopeless at math. That really traumatized me to the point that back in the day in Canada, you could drop math and science in high school pretty early. Guess who did that? (laughs) And I have to say my, my marks went sky high after that, but I've always had this math trauma. So I can totally relate to girls who really are, they have this math stigma. And by the way, we've seen it in teachers that we've trained to teach really simple computer science lessons. And it's especially the female teachers. That's awful. They're perpetuating the trauma through themselves. That's heartbreaking. And it's It's indicative of just how strong that these mental conditioning and societal conditioning can be. Yeah, and that's Great. another thing that drives me. It drives me. I didn't have act programming in computer science. I want to work with my team to create curriculum and lessons where even a kid that's struggling in math can still thrive. Mm, I think that's so powerful. And you see that shift or change or evolve in terms of the age of the kids that you work with? Yeah. So it's really the math stigma and the building, like I don't have building skills or I don't know enough about technology and when they're little, but we can solve that, right? Because we have a lot of class discussions and we guide them through, you know, robotics courses and stuff. By high school, really, it's more about like, uh, the, the tech industry is not sexy enough for me. I don't like, <laughs> I just don't see myself working with a lot of guys who are nerds, right? And I just, a lot of kids, I think, are, I just haven't seen enough examples of interesting tech companies, careers, projects that really show me that I can put my personal interests and hobbies with tech to create an interesting career or interesting study path. I think that's the difference with teenagers. So that's where role models come in and storytelling becomes really, really important, more so than with the younger kids. You know, um, what I just did, my my younger sister, she's in her mid-20s, and she's learning the finance lessons a little bit late. And one of the ideas that I had for her is I want you to follow 10 women on Instagram that are in this financial space you know, and like try to hit them with mediums that they're on and like flood their feed with people in that space. And they're like, oh, well, I don't know any, you know, women of color. They're in that space. And I'm like, I bet you there's tons on Instagram. And there's one uh, Mexican born woman, Kat Voltage, who um, was the first uh, Mexican born woman to go up into space. 
And like her Instagram is amazing showing, you know, girls at that age. She was in high school doing all these like projects of like chemistry and bio and every, and I, she was so engaging, but on TikTok, on Instagram. And again, just even following those people. I'm like, there are lots of people that are like you. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Go follow some on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. And um, I don't know if it successfully worked, but I just wanted to flood her Instagram <laughs> since I know she's on it all the time. Uh, but it is, um, you know, the age difference totally matters of who influences you mm-hmm. at that age. And, you know, even if the girl, you know, one of the examples that you mentioned, Deborah, or like a parent might say, oh, that's not going to work for my girl. It's like, well, if one of their best friends is interested in it too, right? Like that's always a hook of they're like way more open to it if it's their friend that wants to do it rather than like your parent or things like that. And so just the influence and the role model part that is not a parent is so heavy and, and impactful. And you raise a very good point because what we see is, again, at the primary school, when parents register their kids for our programs, I'm not talking about in school, but just uh, after school programs, always the girls come with friends. I want to tell this story because I think it's really important. There's a, it's a single mother. She's in a wheelchair. She has twins. I think they're nine years old, a boy and a girl. She is one of these people that came to us and said, oh, my boy would be perfect for this. He loves this. Oh, I have a girl, by the way. I said, send them both. Well, they both get to class. And guess who is a standout? One of the best students New Tech Kids has ever had. The girl. The boy is middling. Middling. I mean, he's fine. But (laughs) this girl. And I'm just looking at the mother like, what? Do you not see the potential here? Mm. And this always brings tears to my eyes. This girl took her first robotics um, course with us. And I noticed she would stay after and play around. And I asked her, like, what do you focus on? She says, I am going to help my mother walk again. So I need to learn this. Nine years old. Her, her brother was out in the library, tearing up the library. And this girl is behind a computer trying to figure stuff out. Mm. And we need future leaders like that in the world. Oh, wow. Brian, uh, the girl was looking at me, but I had tears running down my eyes, you know? Wow. Yeah. What an inspiration. At that age, too, man. I can't even imagine what I was doing at that it's age. It's amazing how perceptive they are. So my youngest, when I was offered the role as field CTO, it was something that I really hesitated about because I am I am a single parent also. And I knew that it would take me on the road a great amount of the time and I wouldn't be there as much um, for the girls. And um, so I sat down and I talked with them and my youngest looked at me at one point and goes, no, mama, you have to do it because there aren't very many women who do what you do and you need to show them that it's possible. <laughs> and I just like, oh I'm still on the verge God. of tears over here, but you oh. know, they just, they just get it. And it's so yeah. important to give them that information while they still get it. And wow. I love that you had that conversation with her, like a adult mature conversation thinking that, I don't know how this is going to go, but they just, they are so much more perceptive than you think. And I love that she gave you, the permission as well and encourage <laughs> you to do it. I think that speaks to your relationship and how good of mom you are, Sarah. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet of you. Exactly. You're doing a good job now. Send her to us. <laughs> uh, that is the next step. Next year, they're yours, both of them. Mm. <laughs> 
All right, Deborah. Well, um, we're getting closer to the end and we've heard so much about the girls and the education path and program that you are creating. I would also love to know about your entrepreneurial journey. You know, you are a badass entrepreneur in this space and, you know, back to the topic of representation. How has representation played a role in your entrepreneurial journey? It's been interesting to be a black founder. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been easy. Especially in the early days, of course, I went to the tech companies, get funding to get support. And it pains me to say that in Amsterdam, I went to some big tech companies. And funny enough, it wasn't my race. They made a big deal of the fact that I was a non-Dutch. So they were like, we don't fund companies that are um, run by expats. We want to see a Dutch founder. I was gobsmacked. Because our team is Dutch and, you know, we're helping Dutch kids. But that was in the early days. I don't have these kind of conversations. But I was really disappointed because these were the Dutch branches of big tech firms. And I thought, is that what these big tech firms are standing for? But I don't think so. I think it was the Dutch offices. It's been hard in some ways, but in some ways, we really buckle down on convincing parents and teachers It's been a hard road to hold with the schools as well. There's a lot of issues with the Dutch education system. We are dreadfully behind in tech education in the Dutch education system. Most primary schools and most high schools do not offer any serious computer science or coding courses. Yeah, the kids can play around with Scratch. The teachers have no clue, so they just throw tablets in front of kids and say, play around with this. And this worries me a lot, uh, too, because the school system is oriented towards the subjects that kids are tested on. Computer science is not there. That worries me because school is the best way to get tech education to all kids and to make sure that we have a representative group of kids that have future-proof 21st century skills, and it's not happening. So I've spent a lot of time trying to convince schools to bring this in, and it's not been successful. Um, We're starting to see some movement, uh, but uh, that has been a real struggle for me. But I'm really energized because lately we've just had a whole bunch of different kinds of people reach out to us. To say, look, can you do something? The latest being that we're teaching digital literacy mm. programs at school in Amsterdam Southeast. They've asked us to teach every single grade from grade one to eight. So wow. from four years old to 12 years old on average. And that's been really super exciting because we have our own take on digital literacy. Digital literacy is really teaching kids how to navigate the internet and use it to research Mm. and stuff like this. But we are doing things like um, blending a bit of, I guess, the street smarts that kids need to know. For example, Mm. how are companies tracking you? How are they using your data? That's not traditional digital literacy, but to us it's digital literacy. Even just how to Google and with misinformation, like I wish that we had the digital literacy growing up and in college as well. And I love that you are teaching them at that age, even so young is elementary school or primary school to that. Like you are creating future leaders that are going to be so much more informed and going to shape our technological world in much better ways because they've been educated on it more. It gives exactly. me so much help to, or so much hope yeah. also to, to think that maybe people who have learned how to 
learn these things and look at these technologies in a more critical sort of space might someday in a few years be be setting the legislation and be setting yeah. you know privacy law and things like that. So Absolutely. thank you so much for everything that you're doing in that space. And this is the thing coming back to preparation tech and, and, and reaching teenagers, mm-hmm. right? There are many ways to roam. You can, you can be an AI expert, but you can also be a politician or a policymaker who's responsible for regulating technology companies. You could be a lawyer, you know? Mm-hmm. So. We have got to teach kids that no matter what they choose, there is a tech angle, right? Yep. And, you know, having these skills will just open up so many doors. If you don't have them, already the doors are closed. And I really feel that because I know personally how many doors were closed to me because I didn't have tech skills and math skills. So mm. we owe it to our kids to make sure those doors don't close too early. You are such an inspiration. Thank you for everything that you do and creating these amazing future leaders. I could hear you talk all day, Deborah. You are amazing <laughs> and your passion just comes through the screen and the Zoom. And thank you for starting my day in California with a dose of ah, good things to look forward to in the world. It's Thank you pleasure. so much. It was fun. It was fun. I probably said some things I shouldn't have. Who no. cares? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you both Thank have you. a fantastic weekend. I'll Thanks, see you later. Kelly. You too. Okay. Thank you, Deborah. Talk to you bye soon. Bye bye. from HashiCorp. Get the latest episodes automatically in your favorite podcast app. Just click follow or subscribe and find out more at HashiCorp.com. 